I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you or in, just in the pew back in front of you. Um, in that Bible, it's towards the back of the Bible, page 192. That's Revelation 4. With God's grace, I intend the next few weeks to spend considering with you the topic of heaven. We finished up Hosea a few weeks ago, and in the meantime, we've had uh, sorrow hit our church with the passing of Gary, and so it seems an appropriate time to think about this. I want to do this not just for that reason, but there's several reasons I want to address the topic of heaven. First, because it's glorious. What topic could thrill our hearts more than thinking about our eternal home? And if for some reason the thought of heaven is low on the lists of truths that encourage you, I want these next couple weeks to try to elevate that to a place of prominence in your thinking, something that your taste buds of your heart are wedded for, that you long to experience heaven in all of its glory. It's a glorious topic. Thinking about heaven is really thinking about the glory of God. And so if you love God, you should love heaven. You should love thinking about it. It is the place where His glory is displayed most brightly. So I want to think about it for that reason, and I think that's sufficient in and of itself, but there's more. We have people that we know in heaven. If you know Christ, and you know people who have beat you to heaven, then you know people who are there, and so we want to think about what their experience is. We don't want to just think about the temporary heaven, which is what is now. We also want to think about the new heavens and new earth, and we'll spend time considering that as well. But I want you to be familiar with what the Bible says about heaven. It's what we are to look forward to. It's our inheritance, and so we should spend time thinking about it. Not only do we have people that we know who are there, but if you look at our world, you just get fed up with being here. And so you want to go. You want to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And so for that reason, we want to be fed up with this world. We want to be longing for something better. Another reason that we're going to spend some time thinking about heaven is because we're commanded to. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Because we live in this realm, it's where our eyes look, it's what our ears hear, it's what our tongues taste. And so we are issued this command to kind of gaze beyond what our mere natural eyes can see and look to Scripture and set our minds on the things above. It takes intentionality to do that. We aren't just by nature disposed to think about heaven and what it really is. Oh, we might come up with our 
pretensions of what it is, our imaginations of what it might be, but to really see it for what it is, we need to intentionally consider what God has revealed to us about the heavenly realm. And so we want to obey Colossians 3 and set our minds on things above. Fourth reason why I want to consider heaven with you is because the scriptures have revealed a taste of it to us. It's pulled back the heavenly curtain for us to take a glimpse. It hasn't told us all of the mysteries of heaven and all of its glories. We'll have eternity to find those out, but it's revealed a bit for us, and so we ought to take the time to set our hearts on it. Then fifth reason to consider heaven is because if you are in Christ, then your home in heaven will be so much longer than your home here on earth, that it will make your home here on earth look like a drop in the bucket of eternity. And so we need to think about what our eternal home is. We put so much time into decorating our homes, into buying our homes, into painting them, fixing them, cleaning them, and you need to do those things. But in comparison to eternity, it's just a drop in the bucket, and so we need to set our hearts on the place where we will spend most of our lives. And by most of our lives, I mean billions and trillions of years. It will never end. Jonathan Edwards, one of America's greatest theologians, lived in the 1700s, and if you're unfamiliar with his life, he's had a a real influence on evangelicalism, even to today. But he wrote out as a young man resolutions that he wanted to live by. These were kind of just thoughts that he had. If he were to mark his life about what they were to be like, this is what he wanted to live according to. His resolution, number 22, he said, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. We need to store up as much happiness as we can in heaven. This home that we call right now our home is going to be done away with for something so much better. So I want your hearts to long for what is to come. Where your beloved are in Christ right now who have departed, where you will always be. And so I think a period of time meditating on these truths in our church will help us consider how we take Jonathan Edwards' resolution and make it our own. To strive with all our might in this life to prepare for the next. How we are going to go about doing this I don't intend to do a a systematic study on heaven, that is to try to take the whole of Scripture and kind of boil it down into systematic truths for you, but what I want to do is take truths of the Scripture or passages of the Scripture that are just dripping with heaven and preach those. And so it's just like wandering through the woods and you find a, a honeycomb devoid of all the bees and it's just there waiting for your taking. And I just want to take it and taste it and enjoy it with you. There are a number of texts that can do this for us. The one I want to look at with you is Revelation 4. That's where we will start. Revelation 4. 
Let me read this text that's dripping with heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's bow in prayer. Father, you've revealed to us such a great vision here of heaven. You wouldn't have told us this if you didn't want us to understand it, so I pray now that you would help us by your Spirit to grasp the truths of heaven in this text. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's so much in this text, we could spend a long time considering its truths, but I want to come to this text to just set kind of a basic truth about heaven. And if we're not to set this truth up about heaven here at the start, then it would be like we're looking at the solar system without understanding the sun. If you don't understand the sun, or if you take away the, solar, the sun from the solar system, you don't have a solar system. And so we're looking at the very center of heaven in this text. And if you don't get this then you don't get heaven. You don't know what it's about. You don't know what it's there for. And most likely, if you don't get this, you will not enjoy heaven. You need to understand this truth. The basic truth about heaven is God is there. That's the basic truth. If you don't have God, you don't have heaven. It's as simple as that. Heaven can be heaven without you. But heaven cannot be heaven without God. we got to get our priorities straight. So many people want to go to heaven, enjoy all of its glories without the glory giver, without the one who emanates glory. And if you have God and you don't 
If you have heaven and you don't have God, you don't have heaven. So with God's grace, I intend to present this text to you that shows us the center of heaven. It pulls back that veil for a moment, and we get a glimpse of what's there. Now, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He was the longest living of the apostles, probably lived into his late 90s. He lived into 90 A.D., and it says in chapter 1, verse 9, of John's circumstances as he receives this vision. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This book is written by a man who has been exiled because he has testified to Jesus Christ. And because he's testified, he's enduring great agony, he's an exile and most likely enduring slave labor on the island of Patmos. And he receives this vision from the Lord Jesus Christ to tell the churches what is happening and what is to come. Now, if you are familiar with the book of Revelation in name, you might know that it is a book full of judgments. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation by reading it, you are familiar that it's a book of judgments. It has a reputation, and it deserves the reputation. The book of, Re of Revelation unfolds for the reader three series of judgments. In chapters 6 through 8, you get this breaking of a scroll, one seal at a time. And as those seals are broken, there's this unfolding of judgment that comes out on the earth. And we look at these for just a moment to help us understand what's coming after chapter 4. Because chapter 4 of Revelation sets up the rest of the book. And so chapters 6 through 8, as these seals are broken on a scroll, you see these horrific judgments. You see evil conquest. You see a lack of peace come on the earth. You see a famine where the quarter of the earth is killed. You see martyrdom, a great earthquake, cosmic alterations, and then silence in heaven. Moving on to the next judgments in Revelation 8 through 11, you get these trumpets that are blown by seven angels, and with those judgments comes a third of the earth destroyed, a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of fresh water is polluted, a third of light is taken, and there's demonic torment upon the wicked of the earth, demons are released to kill a third of the population, and there's a massive war. And then that's not all. Revelation chapter 16, there are seven bowls of judgment. And with them, the wrath of God is finished. It's harmful and painful sores upon those who have the mark of the beast. The whole sea is turned to blood and everything in it died. All flesh water becomes blood. The sun's flames scorch the inhabitants of the earth. The beast's kingdom is plunged into darkness. Kings of the earth assemble for battle. And there's the greatest earthquake that's ever been known to man. It's terrible what's coming. And in the meantime, kind of scattered through those chapters, you get some other things like massive persecution of the saints, the rise and the reign of the Antichrist, empowered by Satan, the aid of the false witness, the world taken over completely by an anti-God, anti-Christ system that ostracizes the saints from partaking in the socioeconomics of the day. And the, for the majority of them, they become martyrs. 
And so you think, well, Revelation is kind of a book you might not want to read too often because you might be discouraged. This book unfolds for us God's plans for the end of the world. It's world history future, but we find that as you read this book, the shadow of the future kind of is cast over the present. And so while you hear some of these things, you might not understand that the the waters are full of blood, but you might understand there's persecution of the saints now. There's anti-God systems in place all over the world. There are means by which it tries to ostracize Christians from society. There's the experience personally that you might have of being kind of the token Christian in your family and you're kind of laughed at, thought ill of. You might be the person at work who's known to be that kind of crazy Christian that actually believes there's a heaven and a hell, that there's a God on high, that there's a man who call, who's called Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. You might be thought of as that crazy person in your world or in your community. And so we've got this shadow of the future kind of coming over the present. And not only do we have persecution, but there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's famines, there's droughts, there's blight, there's diseases. And so we have a taste of Revelation even now. You just need to have eyes to see it's there. The world is not a happy place. 1 John 2, 18 says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. That's written by John as well, and he lets us know, yes, there's an Antichrist coming, but guess what? The world is full of Antichrists now. People who are against Christ. People who preach a different gospel. People who oppose Christ vehemently. And so you've got the shadow of the future cast over the present. And so this text of Revelation 4 is really here for us now because it sets up expectations for what is to come, but it also gives a call to the saints now to endure whatever you are enduring in this world. And so as John gets unfolded for him, sees these visions of what's to happen, all the horrors he sees with his eyes unfolding over the earth, the thing that prepares him for what he is going to see is Revelation 4. He gets set up with a sturdy foundation to understand all the rest that's coming. Because there's a tidal wave coming, and you got to make sure that your feet are on solid rock to be able to endure it. And the solid rock that we have to endure it is Revelation 4. How are you going to endure not only the great tribulation, but the tribulation that's happening now? How will you endure it? Well, we see that the world is a terrifying mess, but we find out that heaven is a haven for those who know God. It's a place of refuge because we know that there is one on the throne who is on our side. And that gives us security. So let's work through Revelation 4 and get some grounding under our feet. First, let's see the center of heaven. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven 
And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That voice that's speaking is Jesus' voice. You can see it back in chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus spoke to John. He heard his voice, and now he hears it again. And he hears it coming from heaven as he sees this door standing open in heaven. John hears a voice telling him to come up here. This is fascinating to me because there's a door that just is now open in heaven, and it shows that it's not something that John opened. You can't go searching the skies and find the doorknob to heaven and open it up and take a peek. You need to have it opened for you. You need to be invited to see it. And John's invited to see it. He's not just invited, he's commanded to see it. He's told by the Lord Jesus Christ, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John is told by Jesus to come in order to see. Jesus wants John to see this. And he's told to write down what he sees. And he's told to write it down for our benefit. You might be jealous at times that you've never gotten a vision of heaven, that you didn't get to see that door standing open. You didn't get to be told, come up here. You're just wishing, I wish I could be John. Well, you probably would have passed out seeing all the things that he saw. But if you want to see with John's eyes, God has given you a book that records what he saw with his eyes. And so you can be content with what he has seen of heaven as an accurate representation of what God wants us to know about heaven. Jesus tells him, come up here. My thought would be, how? And immediately he's in the spirit. Jesus issues a command that he fulfills in John in verse 2. He says, at once I was in the Spirit. Who put him there? Well, most likely Jesus puts him in the Spirit. And so what he's seeing is kind of seeing things, not necessarily with his natural senses, but with spiritual senses that God has given him to see what's happening in heaven. The Spirit takes John to see what can't be seen by human eyes at this point. What does John see first? As he gets to heaven... What does he see? This is, remember, going to be the orientation of all that John is going to experience in the rest of the book. It's going to kind of set his course. It fixes the perspective of everything else. You get up to heaven, what does he see? If you got to heaven, if you were invited by Jesus to come and see heaven, and you got to walk through that door, and you take your first step in, You would not be looking around at the walls, seeing what color it is. You would not be trying to find your lost friends that have gone before you. You would not be trying to see what's for dinner, what's for lunch, what's for breakfast. You would not be looking up at the sky above or the ground beneath. If you were invited to go to see heaven, there's one thing that you would see, and you'd see it first above everything else. At once, I was in the Spirit, he says, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. There's no question what the center of heaven is. It is the throne of God. And the one seated on the throne who John sees. Now, amazingly enough, there's not a lot of description here that's given about it. But the point is well taken by us. The first thing that he sees, the center of heaven, is the throne. 
And just to help you see how important this is to the layout of heaven, notice the prepositions. Yeah, you need your grammar this morning. Remember there are prepositions that describe the relation of one object to another. See how it comes in verse 2. It says one seated on the throne. Verse 3, it talks about around the throne. Verse 4, around the throne. Verse 5, from the throne. Verse 5, before the throne. Verse 6, before the throne. Verse 6, around the throne. Verse 6, on each side of the throne. Verse 10, before the throne. What's the center of heaven? The throne of God. That's where everything else is related. It's the datum. It's the centerpiece. Had the opportunity to do engineering drawings for a while. And when I would do those, you're, you're uh, putting to paper a, a piece of a structure that needs to be built, and you need to tell people how to build it. And as I was doing that, every time I had a, a structure that I designed, it had to be related to a, a datum. I had to be told what the distance is from that datum, how it's related to that datum, and that is the fixed point. This thing cannot move. This piece might be over here or over here, but everything that it is is related to this fixed point. When you get to heaven, there is a fixed point, and that is the throne, and everything else in heaven relates to that. It's the center of heaven. The word throne is used 43 times in the book of Revelation, and the majority of those uses refers to the throne of God. It shows up again at the end of the book. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the unfolding of the new heavens and the new earth, and as it happens, the word is proclaimed from the throne that God will dwell with his people. And then look at Revelation 22, verse 1. This is the new heavens and the new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Dear friends, there's a throne in heaven right now, and there will be a throne forever. Look back at chapter 4, verse 8. There are living creatures that are around the throne, and it tells us what they sing. It says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the point of that glorifying of God is to say that God is on his throne before, God is on his throne now, and God is on his throne forever. There will never be a time when he is not on his throne. He was there before you were born. He is there while you live. He will be there after you die. That's the center of heaven. Unfortunately, there are these books that are out there published by so-called sojourners to heaven, people who are invited into heaven, and they describe for you what their experiences are in heaven. Not to cast aspersions on them, but the thing I would say is if the first thing 
they see is not the throne of God, they have not seen heaven. That's what they need to see. There are very few people in Scripture who get the opportunity to see heaven. It very rarely happens. But each time it happens, there's a common theme. When Isaiah was able to see heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezekiel. He says, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. There was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. He sees the glory of God, and he sees a throne. Stephen, as he's being killed by stoning in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The universal testimony of Scripture is that the center of heaven is God's throne Who sits on the throne? Well, a king. The king of heaven. The king of earth. The king of all sits on the throne. There was an interview conducted a a few years ago with an apostate preacher. Uh, Somebody's just gone off the rails and you don't even need to know who he is because it's not worth looking him up. The The interview was conducted by Oprah. And she was having an interview with this so-called pastor about spiritual things, throwing out questions. And one of the questions that Oprah asked him was, what do you think happens when we die? And this man's response was, I think there's a ton of, oh, because there's all these people that have gone before you. Some people say, well, then you meet God. But yeah, I never met my grandpa on my dad's side. So actually, when I think of like dying, I think I'll get to meet Preston. That's actually what I think of first. I don't think of sort of gold and a throne. And like, hello, well done. You're strange, but I like you anyway. I don't think of that. I think of my grandpa I never met in heritage and family bloodline. I think of flesh and blood people I've heard about. If there's no throne, there's no heaven. This is so important because the very first command that God gives us is you, or the greatest command is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you think that you'll get to go to heaven and enjoy all the joys of heaven and you don't love God, you won't love heaven. Because heaven is all about God. All of his glory, all of his creativity, all of his goodness poured out to glorify him. And if you don't love God now, you will not love him then. So we need to get this in our hearts. The center of heaven. As hard as this is, it's not the loved ones who have passed on before us. It is the throne of God. Oh, you will enjoy the precious gift of reunification with those who have died in Christ, and I think it will be a precious reunion beyond description. But you will not enjoy that if you look forward to that more than you look forward to seeing God. Because then you will be committing idolatry, which is to worship something more than you worship God. 
The center of heaven is the throne of God. So that's the center of heaven. What does the center of heaven look like? It says in verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. This is an amazingly brief description. You think, if you get the opportunity to see the center of heaven, the very crux of it, you could come up with a few more words than John came up with. It's kind of like me when I talk to my wife. I always say things shorter than she would like me to say. I need to talk more. John is just so pithy, so to the point. There's more that could be said, but every word is just so important here. And perhaps it's brief for a point. Describes the one who sat on the throne as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian. What does God look like? Well, no one can see the full glory of God in our sinful state. To see the glory of God, you'd be consumed where you stand or where you sit. This is a manifestation that's given to John in the spirit. And he sees the appearance of God as jasper and carnelian. Those are jewels. Jasper and carnelian. Jasper is like diamond and carnelian is a, like a red ruby. The crown jewels of England are used for the coronation of a king or queen. The crown for the king or queen is, quote, made of gold and decorated with precious and semi-precious stones, including sapphires, tourmalines, amethysts, topazes, and citrines, and weighs a substantial 2.23 kilograms. That's about five pounds. A five-pound crown sitting on somebody's head encrusted with jewels. One crown has a 317-carat diamond. It looks the size of a golf ball, maybe bigger. And so as a king or queen is coronated, as king or queen, they have this elaborate ceremony, and to cap it off, they put this elaborate garb on them, including a five-pound crown encrusted with jewels to show the royalty of this person and the responsibility that they now bear as king or queen. But that king or queen is going to get tired, take off the crown, and it will be put back in a case, take off the royal robes, and you know what? They're going to get in a nightgown that has no jewels, no gold, and they're going to go to sleep. And they're going to have to eat and go to the bathroom, make meals, and all that stuff that normal people do. And so they put those jewels on them to just help us know that the position that they have, but at the end of the day, they're just a person like you and me. When John sees the manifestation of the glory of God, it doesn't say that he's wearing a crown or wearing robes encrusted with jewels. It says that his appearance is like jewels. It means that his glory is so intrinsic to who he is that he can never take it off. He doesn't have to get undressed for bed. He doesn't have to take off his glory. It's always there. That is our God. It's so intrinsic to him, he doesn't need to put on a crown to show what he is like. He is like jewels. Around the throne, it says, there is something that has an appearance of an emerald. It's a rainbow. 
around God's throne is a rainbow. Not just a rainbow, but an emerald rainbow. That's really cool. Anytime I see a rainbow, I try to remember so I can tell my kids, hey, I saw a rainbow today. And if they see a rainbow, they're all excited. I saw a rainbow, Dad. Or if my wife sees a rainbow, I saw a rainbow. For some reason, we're just struck by that majestic image in the sky. It's amazing. Nobody comes home after seeing a rainbow and says, I saw a dumb old ugly rainbow today. A rainbow is it's a beautiful thing. And we know that it means God's covenant promise to never flood the world again. And so as there's this rainbow around God's throne, it reminds us that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. It means any promise that he has ever made, any declaration that he has said is true and will come to pass, the rainbow being the symbol of his covenant-keeping word. He will always do what he has declared. God is glorious, and God is covenant-keeping. That's what we learn from the description, the brief description of what John sees. Well, now John finally gets to start kind of looking around and surveying the scene. What else is there in heaven? What else does he see? What accompanies the throne? Well, there's a description that he gives of five things that are around the throne of God. Uh, All of these things have roots in the Old Testament, and if you're interested in kind of digging up some some nuggets, uh, do some cross-referencing on these things that show up. I've probably got about five pages I could go through with you on this, but I'm not sure you have the endurance for that, so we'll just cut it briefly. The point is that God has intentionally decorated his throne room. None of this is misplaced. He has things where they are for exactly the reason he intends for them to be there. The first thing that we see around the throne are these 24 thrones, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And you wonder, who are these people? There's thrones, there's 24 of them. Who are they? Well, there's different interpretations of it, and don't think we need to be dogmatic about it, but the basic uh, understanding is either they are angels or they are redeemed humanity, people like you and I. I'd take it as angels. Uh, there's been descriptions elsewhere in the scriptures. When Paul talks about the realm of angels in Colossians 1.16, he talks about thrones, and that's a way to classify a category of angels, those who occupy thrones. In the Old Testament, when David was putting together the plans for the building of the temple that his son Solomon would do, he had arranged that there would be Levites who were designated into classes and categories, and he always arranged them in classes and categories of 24s, 24,000 or 24 sons of Ahasaph, or 24 heads of temple gatekeepers. And so they were responsible for the maintenance of the temple, for the services of the temple, and that's what we see with these elders. They're, they're there around the temple of God in heaven, and they're set there to conduct the services to be part of what is going on in heaven. They sit on thrones, they're clothed in white garments, they're wearing crowns, 
And I think the point for us to take away from this is just that God surrounds himself with royalty. God surrounds himself with royalty in heaven. It's not a humdrum throne room. It is glorious, and it's glorious in the details of even who sits around him in his throne room. The next thing that we see after these elders, verse 5, is from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. These are portents of judgment. From God's throne comes judgment. And this prepares us for what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Revelation. We don't forget what happens in Revelation 4. We know that God's throne is the place from which the judgments are going to come. He's the sovereign and king and the one who will execute those judgments. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, they all come from the throne. These are phenomenon that you find in Revelation 8.5 that accompany the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet in 11.19, the seventh bowl of wrath, 16.18. It reflects the judgment to come. Do you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu? Leviticus chapter 10, when you've got these two sons of Aaron who decide that they're going to conduct worship in their own way, and so they bring in unauthorized fire before the Lord, trying to do what they want to do, do it their way. They go in to offer, and they don't come out alive. And it says in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. God's throne is not something to be messed around with. Lightning, fire comes from it. The third thing that John sees around the throne or related to the throne is the Spirit. It says at the end of verse 5 that before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Look back at chapter 1, verse 4. As John gives greetings to the churches, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who, was, who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, on the earth. John gives greetings and grace from God the Father and from the Son, and it would make sense that he's referring to the Spirit there in the middle. And so Revelation kind of unveils to us the Spirit in the sense of seven spirits, seven being the number of fullness. And so it's telling us that the Holy Spirit is right there, represented as these seven flaming torches before God. They show up again in chapter 5, referring to... Jesus, the lamb that was slain, chapter 5, verse 6, that had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So putting it together just means that there the spirit is before the throne of God and is sent out into all the earth who sees everything, knows everything. And that spirit dwells right before God the Father. The spirit knows the mind of God and sees everything in the world. And there the spirit is before the throne. The fourth thing that John notices is the sea of glass. It says in verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
you read your Old Testament, you've seen this before. In Exodus chapter 24, 10, 70 elders go up the mountain with Moses and it says that they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. In other words, a sea of glass. There was a sea at the temple. It's called the, the Bronze Sea, and it was a, a huge, almost swimming pool-like um, bath that the priests would have to go through and bathe themselves before they could conduct their services as priests. And so the point here, as God has the sea like crystal before his throne, is to represent that there's purity. There's purity in heaven. There is nothing impure that will ever come to him before the throne. In order to come to God, you must be pure. And then the fifth thing that John sees around the throne are these strange creatures in verse 6. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Lion, ox, man, eagle, kind of the broad sweep of the created realm, all there, all right around the throne. They're strange because, one, they have strange heads, and second, because they have eyes that cover them all over. And the way that this is unfolded is they're, they're right there, right next to the throne. And you wonder, why are these creatures full of eyes in front and behind, right there, right next to the throne? What do they do? I think it's kind of obvious. What do you do with eyes? Well, you see. What do you do if you have a lot of eyes? Well, you see a lot. And if you're right next to the throne of God and you're covered with eyes, what do you do with those eyes? Well, you see a lot of God. And if you see a lot of God, what do you do having seen that? Well, what do they do? Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What's the chief activity of heaven when it has the throne of God as its center? It's worship. Some people get scared about that. I'm going to have to go to heaven and worship God all the time? It's going to be boring, isn't it? It's going to get kind of dreary. I think I got 10 billion years. Can I use maybe a couple of those to go explore? Well, probably. But here's the thing. When you go exploring the new heavens and the new earth, what are you going to see with your new eyes? The glory of God manifest in his new creation. And what are you going to do when you see that glory of God? Worship. The highlight of my week is Sunday morning. I look forward to it every week. I would do with a week of Sundays if I could. And the highlight of Sunday mornings to me is the time that we get to spend singing the Lord together, singing to the Lord together. That's the best time. What a wonderful God we have. And it is a joy that he gives us 
to get to declare his praises back to him. Not drudgery, not dreariness. It is awesome. And when we go to heaven and we see the throne at the center of heaven, we're going to worship. But we're not going to be that ridiculous cartoon of strumming a harp on a cloud We are going to be effusing joy out of our souls to the glory of God. There's more to say about heaven. It's going to be cool. And we'll look at some of those passages, and we will be looking forward to what God has in store for us. But if you don't look forward to worshiping God, you are not looking forward to heaven. And if for some reason that's your heart this morning, that just sounds like a drudgery, it sounds like a bore, you have no part of it, you don't know God in that way, I call you to come to Christ. Come to Jesus Christ. Taste of his goodness at the cross. Because the God you will worship is the God who went to the cross to die for your sins, who shed his own blood, the lamb sacrificed at the cross and rose again. And when you meet this Christ, when you come in faith to him and you embrace him for all that he is for you, the the one who takes away your sins, the one who forgives you and cleanses you and makes you pure so that you can enter into the throne room of God without being disintegrated, when you embrace that Christ and know his wisdom, his grace, his kindness, and his love, your heart will sing for joy and you will look forward to a heaven where you get to spend it worshiping the God of heaven. So what's the center of heaven? It's God, and it's his throne. I've beaten you over the head with that, and you know it by now. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all worship. It says in our text, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would understand that better. Even this week, we would appreciate your holiness more than we have. Oh, Lord, if there's any of us who have been dreary about our worship or uh, just in the, in the pits, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts. You would refresh us with a, a new understanding of your holiness. We would be in awe of you. I pray, Lord, that you would make us open your word and meditate on its truths, that you would give us encouragement from one another. We would be built up and edified in Christ this week, and we would be refreshed so that we would worship you. Father, your word says also that those who are seated on the throne would fall down before you, and they would say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Father, if we're not refreshed by your word this week, I pray that you would refresh us even by looking at your creation. We would be in awe of what you have made by the people you've made, the the glorious heavens above that you've made, the world that we live in. You would stir in us a worship of you, And as we taste of that, Lord, as we taste of your glory and your holiness, give us a new and renewed longing for heaven. 
Well, Father, may we be a people who can't wait to get home. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.